if you've been here any length of time at all, you've heard me talk about the fact that um, I have ADD, uh, which is uh, not a big deal. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that most of the uh, my greatest gifts, the things that um, I'm good at, are born out of the fact that my brain works a little bit different. Um, uh, but I won't pretend this. There's not challenges as well. It's it is challenging, and one of the hardest things is. When you have ADD, is raising kids that also have ADD because it, I'm telling you, it is hypocrisy at its worst. Like, I have to yell at my kids for things I did like last Tuesday. Like, it's, it's that kind of, um, that kind of life. Um, but the biggest thing is, since it's Mother's Day, and in fact, I would not be talking about my ADD if my kids weren't like safely tucked downstairs right now where they can't hear how big of a hypocrite I am. Um, but the biggest struggle since it's Mother's Day is, Thinking about my mom um, and and the way she had to raise me. Because back then there wasn't ADD. There was just kids with behavioral issues, you know, which which was me. Those kids that get the report card and the side with all the, like, subjects and grades was fine. And the classroom conduct. You guys remember when you used to get grade cards that had the classroom conduct? And they had those, like, excellent, satisfactory, needs improvement, and unsatisfactory. Mine was just like a string of unsatisfactories all the way down. And my poor mom tried everything. Like she had, I think she even grounded me for a summer. And she warned me like at the beginning of the school year, if you don't behave in class, you're not doing anything next summer. And I didn't behave in class. So I got grounded for like a whole summer, you know, and she didn't like stick me to it. But um, but it was rough. And And it was like talking to a wall, man. She tried everything until seventh grade. Something weird happened in seventh grade. Actually, two things. Number one, uh, kind of my inner nerd woke up. I started enjoying learning for the first time and just knowing things. And so I started paying attention to class and, and enjoyed what I learned. But the, and the second thing, and probably the more important thing, was uh, in order to play school sports, you had to get a progress report every single week. And if a single teacher marked you off, you couldn't play that week. And, and, uh, and I got my first one, and it had classroom conduct in it. And I was like, oh, I am doomed. Um, I'm a goner. And so I turned into... That kid, whatever word you like, brown noser, butt kisser, suck up, Eddie Haskell, anybody that old, anybody my age remembers Eddie Haskell? Um, that was me. I was, uh, I was the perfect student in the classroom. Like I was the bring the teacher an apple kid, you know, um, just to get on their good side so that I could play football that week. Uh, and I was an absolute angel. For the first time ever, I channeled all of my bad for outside of school. And I still got in trouble quite a bit out there um, for a while. But uh, I never missed a week of sports. I was good in the classroom so that I could play. Uh, and the craziest thing dawned on me a couple of years later in high school, um, and I can't remember the exact context, but somebody was asking me if I wanted to do something, and it was something we shouldn't be doing. Uh, and for the first time ever, I didn't want to because I didn't want to get caught and disappoint my teachers. Um, and it hit me kind of weird because I was like, I remembered being the kid that would like, you know, kiss up to the teacher and the teacher would turn around and I'd like flip them off. You know, like I was that kid. I didn't really care about the teachers. I just wanted to play football. Now all of a sudden my teachers thought I was a pretty good kid and I didn't want to spoil that. Like I, I, and so it was this weird thing. Um, the realization like jumped on me that, that I, uh, had faked being a good kid for so long that now I kind of was, I, I was kind of a pretty good kid and it was weird to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm one of those people where the like fake it till you make it. You guys have heard that phrase, uh, kind of worked. Like I pretended to be good. And then the next thing you knew, I was actually, um, considerably different. And hopefully I can weave that into my message. Otherwise this is just like Pastor Chris's memoirs, like, which is not, what, <laughs> it's not what I want, but this is week three in our series. Um, welcome to the kingdom. 
where we're looking at seven elements um, that according to some encyclopedia website I pulled up, uh, make a kingdom, like that every single kingdom that has ever existed um, has. In other words, these are the essential elements that make a kingdom a kingdom. And, uh, and, and I do have a quick confession to make. I chose this outline because it fit. There was like nothing profound about it. It just, when I pulled up the first website, it was like seven things every kingdom has. And I knew there were seven weeks between Easter and Pentecost. And I was like, done. That's awesome. Um, but uh, I have to be honest. There's no chance we're going to finish this series by Pentecost. Like um, the more I've dug into this uh, and begin to study kingdom living, we may be here all summer. Like, I am super excited about this stuff. You cannot wrap this up in seven weeks. Everybody okay with that? If we just talk about what it means to be the kingdom of God for, like, the summer? Um, because I think I think it's going to take that long. In fact, Jess is going to um, bring our message at the end of the month. And and I'd kind of given her, like, this is what I need you to talk about. Um, so it fits my outline. You know, this is what you're stuck with. And we talked this week, and I was like, I don't care what you're talking about. I'm going to be talking about this for so long. You can do what you want because it, you don't have to fit the outline anymore because... We are we are kingdom people, and we're going to learn what that means this summer. Amen. Amen. Okay. Oh, fam, you got to help me because they're not here today. Um, so we uh, uh, we look first week at at the fact that every kingdom um, has to have a king. We talked about how easy it is for us to kind of fall into that spot that Israel was in when they they cried out for a human king, even though they had like the most glorious and powerful king ever, um, and we kind of clicked our tongues at them were like, you know, those Israelites, they chose poorly. Um, But we so easily do that. We turn to politics, we turn to tribalism, or we even turn to theology, anything to keep from having to turn to our king directly and ask for his will. And then last week we talked about the land or territory of the kingdom. Um, As we define kingdom territory this way, the territory of God's kingdom is the space created by God's people as they put their faith in him. Um, the Israelites could only go physically and literally um, where they could go by faith. They ran into the promised land and they didn't have the faith to go in. So they literally did not get to proceed into a space that they couldn't take by faith. And so the kingdom of God becomes this space that we create by putting our faith in Jesus. And primarily that's when a human heart puts their faith in Jesus and thereby kind of steps into the kingdom of God. But uh, and, and by believing in, in his life and, and sacrificial death and the fact that he rose from the dead on our behalf to conquer hell and the grave for us. And when we put our faith in that, we step into that space of the kingdom. Uh, and then our faith takes us so much further than that, which I'm hoping we're going to get into in this series. Um, I drew some lines in the sand last week. Uh, I did my best to make it clear that although we, we don't ever like demand a list of truth statements for you to believe, uh, to be fully included at Open Table and to be one of us, um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, the Bible does make it clear that you have to put your faith in Jesus uh, and the Jesus that the Bible describes to be in the kingdom of God. I touched on the fact that we don't separate or segregate here. Um, and I even uh, explained that, that I would uh, tell you why, that I would explain why this week. Um, and so even though my message, I thought that's what I was going to be talking about this week, this parable, but the Holy Spirit took my message in a totally different direction. Um, like I say, I've been feeling ornery lately. So, um, But I am going to take the time to walk through this parable because it's really formative about how we do things here at Open Table. So Jesus taught this parable. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as as his workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat 
then slipped away. When the crops began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went in to him and said, Sir, the field where we planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds and burn them in bundles and uh, uh, or put them in bundles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. Now, it can be dangerous um, to form like policy decisions based on a parable because um, parables are often kind of open to interpretation. They're metaphorical. But this is one of the rare ones where Jesus went through and like explained what each element of the parable means. And it means pretty much exactly what it sounds like it means. Um, are there people in church that don't believe in Jesus? Absolutely. Um, are there people in church that have bad theology? Yep. And are there people in church um, who are not actually part of the kingdom of God? Most certainly. And should we do everything we can to remove those people? Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. The reason that we don't segregate like true believers from false believers isn't because we don't think that it, that it matters what you believe. We do think it matters what you believe. The reason that, that we uh, don't have like a this is what you have to believe to be fully included here is because I think in, throughout church history we've done way more damage to the wheat trying to pull out the weeds than we've done to the weeds. Um, I think the second you start doing that, you hurt people's faith. When you, when you get into that place where you, you're trying to measure um, who's in and who's out, um, it's not the weeds you hurt. It's the we. We tear each other up. We hurt each other. We wind up criticizing each other and challenging each other. And, and it's, it's, the, it's the weeds that or it's the wheat that suffers when we do this. So we let them grow together. Uh, and we let somebody who's way above my pay grade do the sorting. Um, that, is, that is above my pay grade. Um, so that's how we do it here. Amen? Is that okay? I mean, it seems pretty black and white to me. When I read that parable, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for interpretation. So I don't play around um, with that. So I only go to that parable because I promised I would last week. Um, that's not actually where we're going to start today. We're going to start on a mountaintop watching a bush burn um, without being consumed. Uh, because the kingdom element that we're talking about today is what it means to be the people of the kingdom. And uh, every kingdom has a population. It has subjects. It's one of the things on my encyclopedia list. Um, and a great deal of this week's message overlaps with last week's message. So if you missed last week's sermon, um, hit YouTube or the podcast and listen to that message. Um, because uh, in order to become a citizen of the kingdom, uh, you, uh, uh, you have to put your faith. To be one of those subjects serving faithfully under the king, you have to put your faith in Jesus. And we talked about that last week. Um, I'd love to re-preach that message. I'd love to re-preach that message every week, honestly. Um, but we don't have time. We have to move on. So go listen to it. Totally worth it. Um, but as I dove into this week's message, and I was thinking about what it means to be citizens of the kingdom, no matter what angle I came from, I kept feeling the Holy Spirit push me back to identity and what it means to identify as kingdom people. In fact, that question kept God kept putting in my head, pushing me towards, do you identify as Christ's? Do you identify as his? And so if you guys are okay, I'm just going to like keep pushing towards getting canceled. Like that's, that's, uh, that's, that's where we're at this week. I woke up last week kind of just feeling like it's a good day to get canceled. Um, but if we dive in together to identity, we are messing with sacred cows, and you guys know that. Um, and so, uh, uh, so, and I hope you know I don't ask if this is okay. That's rhetorical because I only wrote one sermon, and you're going to get it whether you like it or not. So, um, so I ask if it's okay, but I don't really mean that. Um, 
And I make light of this, but here's the deal. I believe our society and especially our young people are being lied to. Um, I believe they're under attack and the roots of that attack is confusion and lies um, about identity. And I believe the church has done very little uh, to um, to answer some of those questions. And so I feel like we're called to do what we've been called to do for 2,000 years, and that is confront lies with truth. Um, and when I say truth, I don't mean like this is what you have to believe. I mean the person who is truth, which is Jesus. Um, we, combat, we combat lies with truth. So what I hope to do today is look at where our identity, our kingdom identity comes from, uh, and how important it is to get our identity from the right place. Amen. Okay, if you can't say amen, at least say ouch, right? Um, so let's start in Exodus. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, um, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why is this bush not, why isn't this bush burning up? I must go see. And when the Lord saw Moses coming, it, uh, to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and led them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. So the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of my people of Israel has reached me. And I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So this is really just a setup uh, for what I want to talk about. God has called Moses to this huge calling, a very specific calling. God is calling Moses to his destiny. This is why I made you. This is who you are. And I only assume Moses knew the story of his miraculous birth, how he was put in a basket to escape a satanic attack when he was only a baby. I suspect that in his heart, he knew he was called to something huge. And here it is. Moses uh, has received the call of God. We just read it. This thing that he kind of knew was most likely hanging out there. And Moses follows it up with this statement. But Moses protected a God. Who am I? To appear to Pharaoh, who am I to lead Israel out of Egypt? And I feel like this is the cry of our generation. Who am I? Who am I? And in our culture right now, that's not a philosophical existential question. That's as fundamental as nuts and bolts can get. Who am I? When I was a kid, the big question was, what are you going to do when you grow up? You may remember that question like we asked it all the time. In sixth grade, I, I, we had to give this short speech on what we wanted to do when we grew up. Remember, I didn't get straightened up till seventh grade. So in sixth grade, uh, and I got sent to the principal's office because I gave a, stood up and gave a very compelling speech about why I wanted to be a Playboy photographer. I don't even think I knew what that was. I just knew it was edgy. And so I stood up and gave this speech. I get to travel the world. I get to, yeah, they sent me the, I got in trouble for that. 
Um, but, but we used to wrestle with the job we wanted to do when we got older. What do I want to do when I grow up? Today the questions are so much more fundamental. Am I a boy or a girl? That's a real question now. I can't even describe like how easy that question was to answer like 10 minutes ago. Who am I? Take a quick peek. Oh, that's what I am. Huh, maybe that's not great for sermon material, but... Yeah. And I may not know much, but I knew that. Most of us can't even imagine how, how unhinged from your own identity you have to be for that to be a question. To not know the answer to a question that fundamental. And I make it sound a little funny, but it's not, because wrapped in that question, who am I, is a lot of pain. And you can hear it in Moses' voice, who am I, God? I don't feel suited for what you've made me for. You say I'm this, you say I'm, I'm, I'm this deliverer, you say I'm this person, I don't feel like this person. Who am I? I don't fit my calling. What happens next is where I think we start to get our grip on where our identity comes from. Because God promises Moses, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says this. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of my ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? So Moses asked God, who am I? And God answers, don't worry, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says, but who are you? I don't know who I am. I don't know who you are. Who am I, God? At the most fundamental level, I don't know who I am. And God answers, you're the one I made. Yeah, but who are you? And we can hear echoes back to last week's message. Mark records Jesus' life-changing question in chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? And Moses is asking that question. Who do I say that you are? I don't think we can truly have any idea who we are until we know who God is. And here's why I say that. All the way back in Genesis it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the animals on the earth. And the small animals that scurry on the ground. And now before I read on, church, I swear I'm reading straight out of the Bible. Oh, fam, I'm reading straight out of the Bible. I'm not making this up. So don't cancel me yet. Let me finish. The next verse says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. In his image. According to Genesis, there's two genders. So I double-checked the Hebrew. I checked the Hebrew, and in the Hebrew, there's still two genders. And I Googled, just for fun, a, a list of possible genders. One website had 50. One had 58, and another one had 68. Except Genesis 1 says there's two. And honestly, that's not even what's important to me. The important part is it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. 
And I don't want to get into the scientific stuff about this. Genesis 1 is the six literal days. Are they more metaphorical? That's not even what I'm here for. What I want to talk about is the, is the wisdom of creation. Especially the wisdom of the fifth day. We don't often talk about the fifth day. What happened on the fifth day. On the fifth day it says this. Then God said, let, us, uh, let the waters swarm with fish and other life and let the skies be filled with, every, with birds of every kind. Verse 23 it says, and this was the fifth day. This is what happened on the fifth day. What I love is about God's wisdom on this day, because the fifth day doesn't come until after day two. I don't know a lot, but I know that much math. Day five comes after day two. This is what day five says, or day two. Then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters on the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space and he separated the waters of the earth from the waters in the heavens. So God called the space sky, and everything passes, and everything passed, uh, and morning came, and this made the second day. And I know I'm getting a little convoluted, but track with me here. In day two, God separated the, the, the water on the earth from the atmosphere, and he called the space in between sky. And now you have water, and you have sky. And then a couple days later, he said, let's let the water swarm with fish, another life, and let the sky be filled with birds of every kind. See what happened there? Let me explain it this way. We used to have goats. And we enjoyed them. We loved goat milk. Uh, but we kind of dove into goat life before we were ready. And so we wound up having to sell them. But now I want goats again. I, I miss the goats. So I want the goats back. Except I have three freeloading pigs living in the pen that the goats used to live in. So that's a problem. And so the current status of like get goats at H. Crew Farm is, is that I keep searching online for goats, and Esther keeps repeating the same mantra, no more animals until we get more fence put up. So Esther's using that creation wisdom. See, God doesn't make fish. Oh, that's me. Sorry, O'Fam. Oh, what is it? Awesome. Now I lost my place. God doesn't make fish. Until he makes water to put it in. God doesn't make birds until he made a sky for them to fly in. God doesn't buy goats until there's a fence to put them in. So why on earth do I digress into birds and fish and goats in in a sermon about kingdom living? It says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Rain over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the animals that scurry on the ground. God doesn't make people until he made a place for those people. He doesn't make anything without purpose. He doesn't make anything until he makes a place for that thing to fit. And I believe with all my heart that God not only made you, but made a place for you. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You didn't show up all messed up. And for the most part, I don't, I don't think you have to find yourself or figure out who you are because the answer to that question is answered the same way it was for Moses. If I want to know who I am, I need to find out who God is. Because I have a purpose, I have a calling. I have an identity that I don't have to go hunting for. Because I know right where it is. Paul said it like this. You are God's masterpiece. 
He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God didn't make a bird until he had a sky. He didn't make a fish until he had water. He didn't make you until he had a purpose for you to step into. And you can hunt around to find yourself all you want, but the answer to is where it has always been. You were made in the image of God in Genesis 1. And you were made for a purpose. And here's the deal. If we aren't speaking that truth into this generation, then we have no right to talk about the 68 different identities they come up with on their own. 30 years ago, I walked into an apartment in Shawnee, Kansas. A woman named Cindy looked me in my eyes as though she was looking through them at something written on the back of my skull. She was like, and she said, you, you know God has a calling on your life, right? That he has a plan that, that you're supposed to fill. And, and she didn't tell me about birds and fish and goat fencing, but her words like cut straight through to my soul. Part of having ADD is that my attention bounces all the time. And so I had like 50,000 things I was passionate about. No idea how to choose between them. I wanted, I loved football. Football was my life. I was super passionate about football. Wanted to be a football player. I also like was pre-med at the time. Wanted to be a doctor. Super passionate about that. Also kind of wanted to be a teacher and a coach. Didn't know where that fit, but I was super passionate about it. Had 10,000 things I wanted to do. I knew I wanted a family. I wanted kids, but I was totally sick of the dating game. Like I was, I was, that was driving me batty. I didn't like that anymore. All these things were super passionate. I was super passionate about it. I was super excited about all of them. Am I picking my microphone here? And I had no idea how to, I didn't even know I had a context for how you're supposed to pick these kind of things. I just bounced every day from what I was excited about. Floating around aimlessly, mostly. And like an anchor in a storm comes these words. You know God has a call on your life, right? He has a plan that you were made for. And I'll be honest, I knew, I, you know, I, I had this kind of, I felt like I had this responsibility to God. I have to be a good person and live right, you know. That's how I thought of it at the time. Like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to kind of be good. But it never dawned on me that God had a plan. God had a calling in my life, something he made me for. And that one person speaking purpose into my life changed everything. And again, if if the church is not building the kind of relationships where we can speak into people's lives that they have a calling and a purpose and that God made them for a reason, then how do we ever wonder at the kind of things people come up with to fill that void? Moses is hurting sheep, for crying out loud. When Moses asked that key question, who am I and who is God? He was walking the countryside watching sheep eat grass. The man born to deliver Israel. The man saved by a basket and a brave mother. And the sovereignty of God, of course. All that purpose and calling. And what is he doing? He's a shepherd. A job usually done by kids. Just wasting his purpose. We should never be shocked by the things people come up with when they lose their connection with the God who made them and created them for purpose. Now, one thing we do need to recognize is that this Genesis-level calling applies to every human being. God made all humans in his image. 
And each one was made for purpose, no different than a bird or a fish. But as believers in Jesus Christ, our identity goes so much deeper. So what I want to do here is maybe just zoom in a, a little bit more. And after that, we'll zoom in one more time and then we'll wrap it all up. They're about two o'clock or so, I think. <sighs> Kidding. So we know as humans, we're made in the image of God and, we, and we're made with purpose. We're made for a reason. But the human race is not our only identity. We're also part of a people, and that means something. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we're all, we all belong to each other. Maybe the worst part of kind of consumer Christianity that sprung up is that other than tithing, because we still need people to do that, we never tell people the way that they need to fit into the body and that the body does not work right without them. We've reduced everybody's fit down to giving. <laughs> we need you to give. That's how you fit. But Paul says we all have different functions and we all fit in differently and it's all for the body and the body does not work when you pull a piece out. There's a huge responsibility in that. As I said before, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. I can, I can play music. I can teach scripture pretty well. I love psychology and neuroscience and I do some counseling. I'm pretty good at math. Uh, I read a ton. I can build most things. I can, I can do all kinds of remodeling. I'm not a bad cook. I'm pretty competent techie. I even sew my own clothes when they get holes in them. My dad taught me to sew. Sorry, Mom. I know it's Mother's Day, but I give a shout-out to Dad, too, I guess. Seriously, not much I can do. I'm, I'm pretty competent. It's part of it is because of that ADD. Like, I get super hyper-fixated on something until I learn how to do it, and then I move on to the next thing, and I learn how to do it. Except... I suck at money and time. Like, and I just can't figure those out. I can teach on them because I've studied all the principles. I've figured out, I've studied how to do it, but every single time I try to handle our money or my calendar, I make a huge mess. Esther has to do those things. No matter how much I can do, it's just such a bummer. I can't figure out money. It's not very manly to, to have to ask my wife for an allowance. Like, I'm a pretty manly man. Like, I... I used to fight a lot and punch people in the face. I have a beard. Like, I'm supposed to be manly. But I can't do money. I, I, and I run out of gas. That's another one I can't seem to figure out. I run out of gas. That's not very manly either, to be on the side of the road with my little gas can, because I now keep a gas can in my car, because I run out all the time. One time I was, re- I was reading philosophy and read, you know, Socrates going, philosopher, know thyself. And I was like, I'm getting a gas can. I've just figured out that I'm never going to figure this out. So I put a gas can in the back of the car. Problem solved. Philosopher, know thyself. That wasn't in my notes. I don't know where I'm at. But every single one of us has something we suck at. Don't leave me up here feeling all vulnerable. There's something you suck at. Right? (laughs) Good. But finding our identity in the body of Christ is so important because the world will highlight what you suck at. I didn't actually write that word in my notes. I said bad at, but I don't know. It feels right this morning. (laughs) Especially the social media world. Everything you're bad at will come out as your identity in social media world, especially as you watch everybody else that's good at it. 
Everybody else posting pictures of how clean their kitchen is, and you're like, oh. One of the kids got Esther a, a plaque for Mother's Day that says, my housekeeping style is, there appears to have been a struggle. <laughs> She's going to hang it in, in the kid's bathroom because that's like where it goes. There appears to have been a struggle. But God made us for a body full of people that are good at the things we're bad at. On purpose. So that they can cover your weaknesses and you can cover their weaknesses. They draw strength from your strength and you draw strength from their strength. Because you can't do everything on your own and you're not supposed to. I'm sorry, Brett, I have no clue where I am. I'm just talking. And the, and the part that I think we need to catch today is that Paul goes on this, he gives us this statement about what it means to be part of a body. And he gives a short list of how some of those things function. You might be good at this, you might be good at that, might be good at that. And then, and only then, does he drop into a list of, of how you're supposed to act and live. The good old, like, how you live in type preaching. Love people, hate evil, don't be lazy, pray, help people, be cheerful. And Paul doesn't mention anything about, about how you should live as a Christian until he establishes that you are part of a body. You have an identity, and identity comes first. You gotta know how you fit. And we get that backwards sometimes. We go up people with the, here's how you should live. Do this, do that, do this. And we haven't even explained to them that they have a fit. They have an identity in this place, and they're, and we need them. You know how often we get frustrated with the behavior of the world? When we've done nothing to show them how they fit. Where they belong. It's no wonder our kids are wandering around trying to figure out how they fit in the world. We haven't shown them how they fit in the church. So zoom in a little closer. As humans, we're made in the image of God, created with purpose as the body of Christ. We're made to fit, both drawing from the body and giving to it. And our behavior is shaped out of that relationship. But for us personally, in our hearts, in the depths of our being, our deep inner selves, where do we find our identity? Paul said it, this, said it this way. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you imagine Paul trying to figure out, I have to go find myself. and Figure out who I am. Last week we talked about that question, who do you say that I am? Jesus confronted his, his followers with that question, who do you say that I am? To Paul, that's a pretty important question. Because however he answers that question is the same way he answers the question, who am I? Because Paul says, I identify as Christ. It's no longer I that live, it's Christ that lives in me. So how I answer that question of who Jesus is is pretty important to knowing who I am. I think we can say Paul identifies as a Christian. Because you can't get any more root identity than that, right? I'm not even me anymore. I'm a new creation, Paul says in another verse. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus and the Holy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It means that you are not your own. You're bought with a price and your identity is in Christ. So as humans, our identity is found in God's image. He said he made us in his image. 
as a church, our identity is found in the way we fit into the entire body. And as a believer, our, our, our entire identity is being wrapped up in Jesus. He's the one living through us. And I believe Satan has always attacked identity. When he came to, to Eve in the garden, he said, eat this fruit and you can identify as God. Why be you when you can be so much more? When Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The very next verse is, then Jesus was driven out into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And after that, the, the enemy came to him and, and the first words out of Satan's mouth, if you really are the son of God, prove it. The last words Jesus heard was, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. It was Satan's very first attack. If you really are who God says you are, then prove it. Satan went right at Jesus' very identity. I don't think it's any different today. Our enemy is attacking the very identity of a generation. And we aren't going to help by getting frustrated or debating linguistics. We as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, need to be able to offer something better. We need to be able to to, to offer the answer to Moses' two questions. And we have to be able to answer them for ourselves first. We need to know, you need to know who you are as an image bearer of God made with purpose. In the body, God's church, how do you fit? And above all else, in your own personal relationship with Jesus, does Christ live through you? If you don't know the answers to those things, please don't attack someone just because they don't know what gender they are. I used to do ministry with the, in this homeless community in Kansas City. I'll never forget standing outside the church with Jacob. Jacob and Jackie were this homeless couple that we had had over to the house for Sunday dinner several times. And, and uh, this morning, someone in the church had come to church really drunk, and they'd kind of made a mess of things. And those of us who were kind of working with the homeless ministry had had a very active morning, um, very exciting morning. And Jacob and I were standing outside the church kind of debriefing after this all the drama and I'll never forget Jacob saying, that alcohol, man, that's some dangerous stuff. Totally changes a person. I never touch the stuff. Then he pauses for a minute. He goes, heroin's my thing, but never touch the alcohol. I was like, okay. A lot of us are that way. We get annoyed with the things that this generation is struggling with, but we're no different than Jacob. We wonder how these kids could not know what gender they are. And we're living these lives that are purposeless, filled with all the, the busyness and all the important things, but with no real passion or drive, because we don't have a clue who we are or who God is. So we get up, we do all the things, we go back to sleep, and we do it over and over again, and we wonder why this generation doesn't want anything to do with that. You can't say amen, at least say ouch. So we need to go to the scripture and figure out who we are and walk in that purpose. But we also need to be able to offer the next generation a real experience with the presence of God. Because an ideology is not going to save this generation. 
A worldview is not going to save this generation. Us pointing out a verse in Genesis that says there's only two genders is not going to save this generation. Only a relationship with the real Jesus can save this generation. And although you can push an ideology you don't believe in, you can promote a worldview you don't even follow yourself, you can quote Bible verses all day long, you can't truly introduce Jesus if you haven't met him. That means that we need to experience God's presence for ourselves. Not just a good Bible study that explains to you, according to Scripture, this is who you are in Jesus. You know, in the, when you're in a plane and they tell you that if the oxygen mask fall, you have to put your own on first. That way you don't pass out trying to put your kids on and both of you die. You know. Offering hope to a hurting generation is just like that. You need to make sure that you have a deep and abiding personal relationship with Jesus before we start instructing everyone else on what it means to find your identity in the right places. In other words, you need to answer the big questions. Who are you and who is God? And that has to start with us. So how do we respond to this? In high school, I I was a pretty good person because I pretended to be a pretty good person. And my fear is the church has bought into that. Not open table, because we're perfect, but all the other church. I fear the church has settled for fake it till you make it in place of a genuine, life-changing, living in the upside-down kingdom type life. And this generation wants nothing to do with it. When I got into children's ministry years ago, God spoke to me out of Genesis 15. God made these huge promises to Abraham. Like took him up and basically was like, I'm going to bless you so much. I'm going to give you all this stuff. Those who love, those who, who support you, I'm going to support them. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse them. Like just, just pouring out the blessing on Abraham. And Abraham gets kind of snotty, which is unlike Abraham. Like if you ever read anything else Abraham said to God, he was like, really? Like, God, please don't be upset with me. I just want to make one more little suggestion. Like, he was really timid with God. And in this verse, he gets snotty. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings if I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my house, will inherit all my wealth. And I remember wondering if, if there was anyone in the adult church who, if God were to show up and go, I am going to pour out blessing on this place, would go... What good is it, God, if you're not also going to bless the kids? Most of us would be like, blessings? Yes, please. Pour them on. I'm ready. And Abraham was like, what good is a blessing if I don't have anybody to hand it down to? Don't bother blessing me, God, if you're not also going to bless our kids. But I was inspired by Abraham's like willingness to forego a blessing if there was no one to pass it on to. And so my kids' ministry was born out of that. Because up till then I had this like, it was kind of weird. We went from like never even sending our kids to the kids' ministry. We had this like we worshiped together as a family. And so my kids stayed with me every single week. And then the children's pastor heard that I did some goofy characters, you know, in high school. And I did some some stuff to... Debating forensics and all this stuff, and and so he was like, "Would you mind doing like a character for us?" And so, when I would go do a character in children's church, all the kids would be in children's church, and when I didn't, they would stay with us in the service. And so I went from like we don't even send our kids to children's church to like all into kids ministry because of this verse. 
where I was like, it does not matter what's happening upstairs if it doesn't also happen here. If the kids aren't being blessed and the kids aren't experiencing God, then what's the use? But lately, I've been flipping that. I'm realizing that we need to experience the power and presence of God so that we can have something real to give them. I feel like this generation is mostly lost and the church is majorly to blame because we have nothing real to offer them. So we offer them religion. That's the best we can do. So lately I've been praying, God, pour out your blessings on us so that we have something to give to our kids. Show up in a real way so we have something real to offer our kids. And I'll be honest, a huge part of my desire to dig into what it means to be the kingdom of God is that I feel like the church in America is losing ground. We're exchanging real power for cheap politics. We're trading conviction and sacrifice for comfort and safety. And we've grown to look almost nothing like the early church. And, 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 and therefore we wield almost none of its power. Now we're watching young people, people struggle with who they are at the most fundamental levels and we have nothing to offer but criticism. That's not how the Bible says you should act. So let's close with one last story. On the day of Pentecost, which the church celebrates in four weeks, fresh off an unprecedented and amazing experience with God, Peter spoke to a crowd. He told the crowd about Jesus and what they, what they themselves, the disciples, had, had experienced, who Jesus is and who they are. And the crowd responds with this. Jesus' words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other disciples, Brothers, what should we do? Peter didn't have to tell anybody what to do. He told them about Jesus, what Jesus had done in his life, and the Holy Spirit did the rest. And 3,000 people came to Jesus, almost begged to come to Jesus. My prayer is that we would continue to dive into what it means to be the kingdom of God. And that God would move in such a way that we have something real to offer those who are struggling with those two huge questions. Who am I and who is God? So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is first, begin to join me in praying that God moves among us in a real and life-changing way. And second, maybe drop your guard a bit. Begin to, to, to ask God to help you dive more fully into worship. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you begin to believe that God really does want to move among us. And not just for us, but for our kids. I've been praying for some big miracles lately. And what's funny is, is I'm not praying for them just so the person that I'm praying for or the people that I'm praying for will be, you know, taken care of. I'm praying, God, my kids need to see a miracle. My kids need to have something to hold on to. My kids need to see something big happen. And we could really use one here, so that's the target. And honestly, I don't care if that person gets the miracle or not. I just want my kids to see it. I want their kids to see it. I want all of our kids to see it. I want them to uh, I want them to see you move, God. And maybe as Jesus opens our eyes, we might see those around us who need his presence. We might engage them in a relationship and say, I have something very real to offer you.
Whatever it is, just ask God to start helping you take the next steps in a deeper relationship with him.